As I said earlier this morning, we're, um, we're starting a new series covering the book of Isaiah, covering this, this wonderful book. We're starting today, we're carrying on through until the start of the summer holidays, and we're tackling the whole book. We're doing it not quite verse by verse, but selected highlights that give you a flavor of this whole work. But to, to get the most of it, really do want to encourage you to, to join with us in, in reading it bit by bit. We've got a plan of, of daily readings that can be found on these cards. You can pick one of these up at the back. Um, it's also available on the website. There are five daily readings per week, so there are a couple of days for you to, to catch up on so. Now, it would be very easy for me to say, the reason why you should um, do this is that it makes my life easier. If you follow the daily readings, it will help you to understand the background for each passage that will be preached on, help you to understand the flow of the whole book. And that is true. It does make things a little bit easier for Chris and myself, but that would be missing the point. That would be the missing the point of why we should all try to read through this whole book together. Isaiah is a big book. It's one of the, the longest books in, in the Bible. And it has to be that big if it's, going to do the, if it's going to do anything like justice to who God is, the vastness of God. And we need to have that message. We need to know something of God's greatness, of his vastness. We need to expand our vision of who God is. And that means we need a, a more robust, a more substantial theology. That means going deeper into these, these books of the Bible, kind of like really big books. Why do we need that? Just think of your own life. Just think of your life, your, your own life, your personal life, the life of your family, the life of your friends, your colleagues, Think about maybe what some of you have gone through this week. Stresses, strains, anxieties. Think about the things that maybe keep you awake at night. Think about what we face as a church in, our, in a culture, in a society around us. Think about what's going on in the world around us. The kinds of things that Ian and Catherine were praying for earlier. Think about the chaos and the conflict. We need a big theology, which is simply to say we need a big understanding of who God is. God who is able to handle all these things. But it's, it's about our understanding, about how we make sense of what we see around us. Who likes going for a walk? Think about sunny day, going out for a walk in the park. Put your shorts on, maybe put your hat on, just to kind of protect if there's a bit of heat. You know, you wear your shorts, you've got your sandals, you bring a little bottle of water along for refreshment, just to kind of keep you cool. That's fine. That's good for a you know, simple walk in the park. What if, what if you're going on a hike? <laughs> you know, you're going for a walk in the Three Peaks, you're trying to climb, walk up Snowdon or whatever. That sandal, your little hat, your little bottle of water ain't going to do much good there. You'd be in big trouble if that's all you've got, a pair of flip-flops. 
Life is not a walk in the park, is it? It's more like those big, epic treks that we're talking about. It's more like you need to be prepared to face the elements, to face all the different things that were going on. We, we need to be properly prepared. And when we're reading and studying and meditating on big books of the Bible, like Isaiah, with the many deep and kind of complex truths that we find in there. That's what we're doing. We're preparing ourselves. We're being equipped for all that we face in life. There are going to be things that we read in here. Some of you may have already faced it this week as you started reading, and you're scratching your head, and you're like, I can't, can't quite figure it out. But, but the more we read, the little bit more we're going to understand, the bit more we're going to understand about who God is. And so in chapter 6, we're thrown then into this incredible scene. We're thrown into an encounter that the prophet Isaiah has with God, and not with a small kind of tribal deity, but a big God. An encounter with God in all his majesty and his splendor. And this encounter brings out different experiences in Isaiah, and we'll be looking at those. Maybe some of you, you know, you picked one of these up last week or um, you started looking at it and you've been reading through the first five chapters and face it, it feels a bit bleak. Feels bleak. I mean, Isaiah, this book that was written 750 years before Jesus, and he's a prophet that covers a you know, big span of life in, in, in Judah. But in the first five chapters, it feels bleak because he's talking about God's judgment. God's people, they're being judged. They're, they're sick spiritually. There's a theme in, in these chapters of, of God's people. It seems like they're worshipping, that their worship looks full and vibrant. But God says, no, your worship is, is worthless. And it's offensive to me. That's what God says. God looks out and he sees where there should be righteousness. Instead, he sees sickness. He sees injustice in society. He sees pride. He sees arrogance. He sees it in the leaders, but it's filtering down to the ordinary people, to the common people. And as we go on in these five chapters, God promises a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. Yes, there are a couple of bright spots in that. I've read some of those early. One of those early from chapter 2 talks about the mountain of the Lord, talks about the branch of the Lord. But otherwise, the canvas that Isaiah's painting has got these dark strokes, dark shades. Does that reflect Isaiah's context? Does that reflect the situation Isaiah was speaking into? When in chapter 5, and Isaiah is pronouncing woe upon woe, woe upon woe. Is that what the people felt? Were the people thinking, you know, this guy's talking about woe. Yeah, we feel that. Was he, was he in tune? Was he echoing the mood of the nation? I don't think so. Chapter 6. Verse 1, it starts this way. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a, on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah, um, King Uzziah died in 739 BC. 
and he'd been king for a long time. He'd been king over the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old, and it was a successful reign. But underneath all of that, all, although all was not rosy, it looked good on the surface. There was success. But if you, read, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Underneath, you know, first came the power, but then came pride. Pride. It seems that desire and his success and his grandeur, he overreaches he does things that he's not supposed to do, and he's struck down with leprosy. For the last five years of this king's reign, his son Jotham was effectively the ruler of Judah. So underneath that success is pride and arrogance in the king and amongst these people. But alongside then this, this account, or rather, just behind there, this account of this earthly king who dies, there's this vision of a majestic holy king who's ruling over all. You've got the Lord who reigns. Isaiah has this vision and he has this experience, the first experience of the Lord's majesty and the Lord's holiness. All the details here speak about that. He's high and he's exalted. He's on a throne. He's superior the train of his robe fills the temple. And, that, and, that, and that's a picture of God's power filling all of life, filling all of existence. The seraphim, who are these ministering angels, literally they are the, the, the burning ones. They minister to Almighty God. They do that continually. But even they can't withstand God's power, that, you know, the awesomeness of the Lord They've got wings, and with their wings, some of these wings have to cover their eyes. They can't. It's too much for them to stare on God in all his glory. They have to cover their feet to do the same. And the other wings are there to fly. And it says that they praise and they worship the Lord continually. Holy, holy, holy. It's not simply a repetition of God's holiness. But what they're declaring is almost like an intensification of it. This isn't holiness plus holiness, not plus holiness. This is like holiness, you know, to the power of holiness, to the power of holiness. They're saying that there is no one else greater. There is, so, there is no one else more holy. And this scene is awesome. It's terrifying. Isaiah's senses are, they're overwhelmed, you know, the sight of these angels, the sound of this praise which is shaking the building, the smell of the smoke of like incense filling the temple. And he cries, woe, woe to me. Do we believe this is the same God that we worship today? same God who is present amongst us now, the same God who is with um, our young people, the same God who is with our children in Promised Land, on Promised Land Junior. Now, obviously, Isaiah is highlighting God's holiness here for us. That's what's filling 
our gaze and gaining our attention. But you know, God is never less than this. He's never less than this. If we say we feel God's love, we feel God's compassion, his kindness and his mercy, we don't feel that because God has had to turn down his holiness. God doesn't have to balance out his holiness for his love. He's perfect in his love and his holiness. And so how do we respond then to this holiness? You know, it's not enough for us to say holiness is just one aspect of God. You know, that we think about now and again when, when we sing a great hymn like we just did a couple of moments ago. You know, today we used that word holy. It almost feels derogative. Someone's described as holy. It's not usually a positive thing. Oh, he thinks he's so holy. But God's holiness is a good thing for us. He is set apart. He is above us. It's not simply majesty that rules, but this is a majesty that's perfect in morality. He is perfect in his goodness. God is perfect in his rightness. There is a perfect beauty in his holiness. And yet this experience of God's majesty and God's holiness it causes Isaiah to despair. Woe to me, I am ruined. Isaiah gets it. He gets it. He gets the fact that he can't stand in the presence of a holy God. Sometimes when we think about what's pure and not pure, when we think about maybe uh, the holy and, and, and the defiled, we, 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 we think about how something that is impure contaminates what's pure. You know, we, we think in, in, in those terms. It's one reason why we say the clean separates from the unclean. 1 Corinthians 15 says bad company corrupts good character. But that's thinking about it from our point of view. You see, what Isaiah sees here, he sees that although he is impure, although he is unclean, he can't contaminate God. He can't taint God. But instead, in God's presence, he's ruined. He's undone. I remember as a, a, a kid, if we ever got a stain on one of mum's white tablecloths, mum wouldn't just wash it. She'd kind of hang it out in the sun, hang it out in the bright sunlight, and it would somehow do its work. I mean, I looked this up the other day. It said it was, this is kind of ultraviolet radiation from the sunlight that breaks down the molecules of the stain. That's how Isaiah feels in God's presence. He feels like those molecules that in God's purity, God's perfect light, he's broken down. He's being disintegrated by the reality of God's presence, by the reality of God's holiness. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Why does he talk here about unclean lips? Why not unclean hands or an unclean heart? Well, lips are probably representative of, uh, of, of the whole body. You know, Jesus says, um, Jesus would go on to say that out of, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe Isaiah is also getting at something of the culture of the people that he was speaking to. People who could happily worship God with their lips, with their prayers, with their songs. But there's no heart. There's no transformation of the heart which is driving that. Just literally lip service. But, you know, Isaiah, he's not making any excuses here. He's not making excuses. You know, we're not sure if this is the absolute start of the ministry or whether this chapter is a bit like a flashback, a flashback after the opening five chapters. But the point is that Isaiah, he's not trying to separate himself off. He's not trying to say, well, look at those people, them, with the unclean lips, but here I am. No, he's saying, first of all, I am a person. I am one with unclean lips, and I'm amongst people of unclean lips. I'm no different from them. He's recognizing his sinfulness, and these words are, are in confession before God. And really, this should be the end of Isaiah. But clearly he isn't, because he's experienced God in his holiness and God in his majesty. He experiences his sinfulness in God's presence, but now he experiences God's grace in atonement. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is God's grace. Isaiah has done nothing to deserve this. He's done nothing to earn it. But God atones for Isaiah's sin. Isaiah is broken. He is disintegrated in God's presence. But this live coal comes, taken up from the altar. And it comes, and, and, and the seraphim comes and touches his lips with it. And his lips are, they're cauterized. They're burned. They're sealed. Seared, even, to prevent infection. It's a vision. But we're meant to feel in all of this Isaiah's pain at what he's going through. One writer says, this is this isn't just mercy, this is severe mercy. It's severe mercy as opposed to cheap grace. Forgiveness is not earned. Forgiveness is freely given through Jesus Christ. But for some people, confessing sin and experiencing forgiveness, their experience of what Isaiah goes through, it will, it will be painful, it will be agonizing. I actually don't think that anyone can just simply say, I look back at my life, uh, I'm sorry, God, and then just move on, running off to go back to what we want to do. Isaiah is saying here that there is a wound that needs to be seared in order to be healed. Some of you instinctively know this, that you know that coming to Jesus is not a simple and an easy thing. You know that there's going to be deep change in your life. You know that coming to Jesus is going to turn your life upside down. And maybe if you're thinking, if I come to Jesus, I'm not sure I'm ready for all the change that I need to do. 
see God's grace. See that this is a work that God does in you. It's his work in you. We're not called to take the coal and put it to our own lips. No, it comes to us. Again, the details in this vision matter. Where does the coal come from? It comes from the altar in the temple. What's the altar in the temple about? It's the place of sacrifice to deal with sin. Guilt is placed upon an animal, symbolically transferred onto an animal, then placed on the altar. And the fact that, that, all, that the, the coal is alive tells us that the fire is burning, that there is a sacrifice there. And without doubt, when we consider the whole Bible, we see the cross here in these words. We see that it is Jesus' sacrifice, his substitution for us that means that guilt is taken away and sin atoned for. And now Isaiah hears the voice of God. But before he hears the sound of praise and the voice of the seraph, he, he's hearing the living God. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah has experienced God's gracious atonement. He's experienced forgiveness for his sins. And now he's experiencing the change of heart, a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. Maybe some of us have heard these verses as, as a rallying call to, um, to come and work for church, to kind of, as it were, give up your whole, whole life for a Christian vocation. I don't think that's what it's about here. See, our whole lives are meant to be dedicating to serving God, but serving God in whatever context, whatever environment he places us in, in our workplaces, amongst our friends, with our families. See, it'd actually be really easy to end the sermon right here, right now. Here I am, send me, send me out into Muswell Hill. Send me. But we can't ignore what's coming next. Because Isaiah experiences a call from God, a commission, but it's weighty. It's troublesome. It's difficult. Let me read from verse 9. God said, he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but not perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. God says to Isaiah, go, go and speak my message. But know this, you're going to be speaking to people who will not listen. And the more you speak, the harder their hearts will become. And they will not listen. 
It's not easy to talk about. It's not easy to explain. But God is saying, I'm, you're going to speak my words. And these words are going to confirm something which is already in place. It's going to confirm the fact that these people are ready for judgment. Isaiah is told that the more he speaks to them, the clearer he is about the reality of God, the reality of their sin, and and impending judgment, the more that they will resist him. And we quickly go, yeah, but that was then, that was the Old Testament. And then Jesus quotes these words. Verses 9 and 10 are words repeated two, maybe three times in the New Testament. Jesus uses them to explain why he speaks in parables. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he uses these words right at the end of the book of Acts. So these words still carry weight for us. But there is hope. The fact that you are here now listening, the fact that some of you have, that you have changed hearts and that you love God and you have embraced salvation shows that these words have had an impact. For Isaiah's hearers, the message was about judgment to come, judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. But he goes on to say, a stump will be left, described in verse 13. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. What are we hearing here? Grace will be the last word. Grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace through Jesus Christ, the sacrifice on the altar. That means that we have, can experience atonement and forgiveness. This passage talks about judgment for the people of Judah, but the holy stump is Jesus. Jesus who would not only preach, Jesus not only the one who was sent perfectly to pronounce this message, but Jesus himself, who would be the means of salvation.